Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Ridgeview Church. My name is Alex Barron. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, usually I'm preaching the sermon, but this morning we have a a person that's going to be speaking uh, for us, a guest speaker. I want to introduce Dr. Alex Stewart, who's going to be speaking uh, today. Uh, Alex and his wife, Jenny, have been part of our church uh, for a couple years now, and uh, we're blessed to, to know them. And this is Alex. Everyone say hi. Um, one of the Alexes is taller than the other, and now you can figure out which one that is. Uh, but uh, Alex and his family have really plugged into Ridgeview, and Alex serves as the vice president of academic services at Gateway Seminary. It uh, used to be called Golden Gate Seminary. That's actually where I went to seminary. And Alex really serves future Christian leaders throughout Southern California and beyond. And at Gateway Seminary, they really are put in a position to equip uh, the next leaders of the next generation to lead churches, ministries, to send out to be missionaries throughout the world. And so Alex is doing a really key work uh, in our local seminary here that's in Ontario, just right in our neighborhood. And as a church, uh, we actually are partnering with Alex as he is a part of that. He is a part of our congregation. His family serves. They're a part of our community. Uh, But also, we get to be a part of this extension of equipping uh, leaders uh, throughout our, our state. And so, Alex, we thank you for all that you do at uh, Gateway, and we look forward to hearing you as he talks on our second week of prayer. Let's welcome Alex. Well, thank you very much. And to share a little bit more about Gateway Seminary, those, some people may know a lot about it, others may not know much, but we train pastors and Christian leaders from the West uh, for the West. And so we have about 2,100 students in a five-campus system, so in Phoenix and Colorado and uh, Vancouver, uh, Washington, and then the Bay Area, and then Ontario is our main campus. That's where I'm located, and I'm, I'm working there. Um, so there's a sense where I moved to California you know, to serve at Gateway, but also a very real sense that I'm sent from this church, my local church, to serve there. And so I'm, a, you know, in some ways, a missionary from Ridgeview to serve in this ministry that is impacting churches all over the West. Um, and so that's how I, I view it in a very real way. Um, so I want to introduce my family before we get started. Um, here's a, a brief picture of us. We normally sit over this way in the back because when we're all standing, it's sort of a human wall. <laughs> and so, so we try to stay off to the side there, um, but we can't always prevent, you know, if you're behind us, you may not see the screen very well during, during songs. Uh, so my wife, uh, Jenny, then four boys, uh, Elijah, Benjamin, Paul, and Micah, and then the two girls, Sarah, Kate, and Karis. Um, we spent uh, eight years in the Netherlands. So there's a Christian ministry there we were a part of, and the two girls were born there. Come our Kas Maishas, our cheese girls, as it were. That's what they call them. Uh, and then we moved back here to the U.S. about two and a half years ago now. So that's a little bit about the family. Let me pray for us before we turn our attention to Scripture. Father, we thank you for this morning. We're gathered in your name as your people to worship you, to draw near to you together, to hear from you through your word. And we're thankful for that this morning. We ask that you would Bless this time, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would change us as we draw near to you today, and we would leave a different than when we came in, not just knowing more, but motivated to put into practice what we know. So we ask you for that, for your spirit to guide us this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're continuing this series on prayer, the invitation, the invitation from God to, to enter into relationship with him through prayer. And if you think about it, healthy relationships, any type of relationship, requires constant communication. 
know, if I only talked to Jenny on Sundays, you know, it wouldn't take long <laughs> for that relationship to be in serious trouble. We probably need counseling before too long. You know, I'm only talking to you on Sundays. Um, that would be a problem. So prayer, very simply put, is nothing more than communicating with God. It's communicating with God, talking with him, strengthening that relationship through regular and meaningful communication. And the topic of prayer sometimes could produce some negative emotions, right? Because we might hear of prayer and we have some shame or some guilt because we have this background sense, right, that we should be praying more, you know, or praying more often or praying longer. And that, that's a, a, a discouraging, sort of debilitating negative uh, emotion that sometimes accompanies prayer. But that reveals that we're not really understanding how this relationship with God works. And this series is an invitation to deepen this relationship through strengthening our ability to communicate. And much like most marriage counseling, the focus is communication. And this series is a little bit like that, to help us communicate better. Everything in life is better with God. I'm very confident about that. Everything in life is better with God. So I could choose to spend a morning stressing about finances and worrying, or I could draw near to God. I could gain his perspective. I could draw comfort from his presence, and I could make a plan for finances. Or I could choose to spend that hour in traffic just annoyed at everyone around me, or my soul could connect with God. Right? My spirit could connect with God's spirit. I could uh, enter into his peace. Like the, Your fellow travelers can't stop that. <laughs> you know, there's no special place you have to be to draw near to God. You know, I could choose to be upset with children for the messy house, you know, or I could pause to invite God into the mess right? and into my parenting, <laughs> to, to parent the children with me, to look to him, to guide me in my parenting. Uh, so we, we're making these choices, but everything in life is better with God when he's involved with what we're doing, when he's, uh, we're entering into his presence and he's active in our activities. So it's living a life with God instead of without him. That's what prayer is, this habit of prayer. It's the spiritual air we breathe as Christians. If you think of air, you know, we're breathing it all the time. It's not a burden or a box to check. You know, it's more of a way of life, that we're living life in relationship with God. And the same as with any relationship, that habit or reflex of constant communication, we do want sort of sometimes set aside. So with your spouse, you're communicating often, but you, you normally hope to have a date night occasionally or you know, sometime during the week, five minutes, 10 minutes, you're connecting. And that's similar with God. So we want to be in communication with him all the time, you know, uh, living life with him instead of without him. But that also does often require that we spend some specific set time in prayer. And I like what Pastor Alex said last week. He said, well, how long? I said, well, start with, what, 15 seconds? I think is what you said. You know, start there and go from there. And often, I mean, a, a, a Christian life, we can spend five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes, like, you know, half an hour a day. But there's no, there's no arbitrary, artificial number to reach. I've got to pray half an hour a day. Well, no. Uh, but as the air we breathe in our relationship with God, if we don't have any air, we'll suffocate. Right? And then also, even when we are breathing, like it's not fun just to hold your breath randomly for no reason. <laughs> like that's, that's not a fun way to live. It's sort of miserable uh, to just be holding your breath uh, for no reason at all. So it's, again, there's not a set time, but, but we should be developing these rhythms and habits of spending time with God. So this week and next, we'll look at a very famous prayer, the, uh, often called the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll do the first part of it this week, and then Pastor Alex will finish it next week. In this prayer, Jesus taught his followers in response to a question. They asked him in Luke chapter 11, teach us to pray. <laughs> and this is, this is what he said. This is how he taught them. 
So it's very much sort of an instructional how-to guide on prayer. And he starts in chapter 6, 9 through 11 with saying how not to pray. So he gives two examples of how not to pray, and we'll start there before he goes into how to pray. We should have it up on the screen here, Matthew 6, the first few verses, and um, verse 5 through verse 6. He says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. And truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. So first, Jesus, when he's saying how to pray, how not to pray, well, don't pray like the hypocrites. Right? That's the first not to. Uh, and hypocrites, an English word based on a Greek word. And sometimes we just bring the words right over. Hypocrites is the Greek word, and we get hypocrite uh, from that. And originally, it means actor. So that, you know, you've heard about Greek theater and, and plays. And so the hypocrites is the actor. He would often put on a mask to play different roles. So the hypocrite's an actor. And then when it's used outside of that context of stage uh, and theater and actors, then it's just a pretender, right? Someone who's putting on a mask to fool others or to pretend to be something they're not, uh, to deceive or to trick or manipulate or impress others. So hypocrite, you think of actor or pretender. So Jesus says, don't be like a hypocrite, an actor, a pretender, where you're putting on this show to impress or manipulate or trick others, but it doesn't match reality. So we don't want to do that. That's the first step. He critiques those who use prayer as an opportunity to gain attention or to gain reputation. Or people think, oh, you're so spiritual because you're praying. That's the first critique. The instruction to pray in secret doesn't mean you can never pray in public or pray with friends at meals or pray at church. Um, It's not that, but it's emphasizing that our prayer life with God is primarily personal. It's primarily us and God. You know, it's not a show. It's not for outsiders uh, to view and applaud. Um, it's the, it's the, the life of our relationship with God. Um, so the point here is to not pray with self-serving motives, to publicly show off sort of spirituality and devotion. So the next step is he goes on in this passage, starting in verse 7. He says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So here's the next, don't be like this. Here it's don't be like the pagans. So Jesus is telling us not to pray with wrong ideas about how prayer works or wrong ideas about God. So most people in the first century prayed. You know, they prayed to gods, but their prayers were were similar to what we would think of as magic. I know you may not have thought of prayer and magic before, but in magic, you repeat certain words or phrases in certain ways to try to manipulate the gods or God or spiritual beings to force them or compel them. You know, and these gods in the ancient world were often distant or unpredictable or just as easily mean as good. Yeah. And so you're trying to find how do you protect yourself from a mysterious spiritual beings who could harm you. And magic was a, a significant way in the first century you would try to do that to have protection or control or compel spiritual beings to to act different ways. But God cannot be compelled. He cannot be forced. So magic is is not work. Magic and, and treating prayer like magic is the wrong way to do it. The repetition of words as well in prayer was often a way to try to get the God's attention, right? They were not otherwise inclined to listen. They were distant. They weren't, they didn't really care about you too much. So you'd have to repeat and repeat and repeat to get their attention. 
But God is not absent or disinterested. He's very interested in you. So Christian prayer is not like magic. We can't control God by using certain words or phrases. We don't need elaborate rituals or noise to get his attention. And you may have observed some types of magical thinking in Christian prayer. But I know some people who are always using certain phrases and you wonder, like, you know, how is this phrase working? Like, why do you keep saying it that way? Um, you know, pleading the blood. I've got a, fr- a friend who's always pleading the blood. And that is a meaningful expression. You know, it's drawing attention to Christ's sacrifice. That's the blood. Um, and that's the basis for our confidence coming before God. But it could be used in such a ritualistic uh, way that it's, it's almost like a magical incantation. <laughs> you know, if you say it right with the right emotion in the right way, you're going to somehow accomplish something. Um, and it, that's not how prayer works. You may have also noticed a lot of Christians, we end our prayers in a sort of ritualistic way. We say, in Jesus' name, amen. And that phrase could also be repeated without much understanding or our meaning, our understanding of the significance of what's being said. So when we conclude a prayer in Jesus' name, we're, we're pointing to the source of the authority for the prayer. So that's very clear in the Gospels in the book of Acts. We've been given Jesus' authority right, as his representatives to make requests that are in line with his character and his intentions, with his approval, backed by his power. That's what the phrase is pointing to. Right? In Jesus' name, we've been given this delegated authority as his representatives to make these requests. Um, so that's it's an expression that we declare our confidence in prayer as we ask with this delegated authority from Jesus. And so it can be used sort of in this you know, way where we're not really meaning what we say. It's just a habit, um, but it has significant meaning. The similarly with the word amen, it's from a Hebrew, original amen, and it's used in the context of prayer as a sort of a solemn affirmation, like truly or verily or let it be, or this is, this is true. And in, you know, in the first century, you would often say amen in response to someone else's prayer. So they would pray and you would say amen to, to uh, affirm that. That true, this is, I'm, I'm, agree, I'm in agreement with this prayer. But then when we say it in response to our own prayer, it's sort of this idea of, of let it be. Let it be done. Uh, is the significance there. So in Jesus' name, amen, it means something like, you know, based on the authority and power of Jesus, which he's given to me as his representative, let it be. Let it be done. Um, so again, it can be, you know, some Christians may treat the phrase as sort of this magical type thinking, uh, but hopefully it's, it's not that uh, for you. Um, and, and definitely not after today, right? So we'll know what we're saying when we say other words. The phrase is not magic, and it's not this ritualistic expression that needs to be said at the end of every prayer. Um, there are no special words or expressions that give prayer power, right? There's no special words you have to say. Prayer has power because it's the means by which we're connecting with God. We're communicating with God, not because certain words are uttered in a certain way. So Jesus begins his training, uh, his followers, how not to pray. Not like hypocrites, right? They're just pretending to be spiritual to get attention or to get honor. And not like the pagans, they're treating prayer like magic to try to control or compel or force the spiritual powers to act in certain ways. Uh, We don't do it that way. But then how do we pray? And that's where Jesus moves now in this next section of uh, the prayer. And he starts verse 9, this then is how you should pray. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to repeat the exact words of the Lord's Prayer. You know, it's of course fine to do that, and Christians throughout the centuries have uh, found a significant meaning in these words of the prayer. The words of the Lord's Prayer, I think, provide us with themes 
that we are invited to explore and expand. And I, I wanted to think of a, an a, a illustration for this. It's sort of like jazz improvisation, where you have the basic themes, but you're, you're improvising, you're expanding, you know, you're, you're building on them. And I have a brief clip we'll listen to in just a second. Um, it's been called the most important 15 seconds in all of American music. Uh, that is, you know, could be disputed. You know, it's not MC Hammer, unfortunately. <laughs> like last week, we can't compete with that. Uh, but Louis Armstrong, his Hot Five on June 28, 1928, uh, recorded a song that marked the beginning of modern jazz. So we can listen briefly for just a few seconds. So just a, a short taste of some improvisation, um, and then it gets much more complex, of course, as you're, you're improvising along with other band members. You know, I'm not an expert in jazz improv, uh, but there are these starting points that get things going, but the beauty and the power is in this improvisation. Um, and if you've not prayed much before, it could sometimes be hard to know what to say. And that's where we could start with the words of the Lord's Prayer. You know, Jesus taught us to pray this way. It's a good place to start, but it's an invitation to improvise. You know, to build on it, to expand on these themes, to enter into your own sort of expression of these ideas back to God. So to, we'll have this in mind, back of our mind, as we go through this prayer uh, of jazz improvisation. Now, there are no perfect words or perfect way to do it or to pray. You know, our intent matters far more than our ex, uh, eloquence. And you can think of young children that when they're learning to speak, the very beginning, right, is with one word, right? So it could be you know, water, or wawa, or nursey, or mama, or when he says that, that, you're like, oh, he said my name, he's calling for me. That's great. We don't reprimand them because they're not getting it perfectly right. We're excited that they're communicating with us, right? Especially when there's eye contact and they're communicating, you're just like, oh, yes, yes, there's a connection. You know, I was concerned at one point, my own parenting, and I can't remember which kid this was, when the children seemed to devolve a little bit. They'd been watching a lot of this show called Max and Ruby, you ever seen that or show? Uh, there's a cute little bunny brother who communicates with one word sentences. And it's really cute in the show. Um, and it's probably a fine show. But I began to notice the kids were copying Max because he's so cute and funny. So they're just saying these one word sentences when they're capable of so much more. And so as a, uh, like most young parents, I probably overreacted. <laughs> I was like, no more Max and Ruby. <laughs> or no, I'm not going to see our, our kids going backwards in their ability to communicate. Um, so that may, again, have been an overreaction. I'm sure it's a fine show. Um, but when we're praying, you know, uh, we do mature over time in our relationship with God and our ability to communicate with him. But even then, there's no standard of perfection that we need to try to attain. God's not waiting for you to say things just right. He delights in relationship, right? In every moment where we're turning towards him instead of away from him in our lives. When we reach out to him, even with fumbling or inarticulate words, God delights in that. So the simple word help, help, right? Or God help me, right? That could have far more power than this sort of long, eloquent speech that's half-hearted. <laughs> Just help. Uh, or one of the prayers in scripture, have mercy, God, have mercy, right? When it's, when it's spoken with meaning from our heart, with sincerity, there's power. Uh, again, it doesn't need eloquence. So we'll look now at the prayer itself, and it starts with our Father. And the Bible uses a lot of images or comparisons to describe this relationship that we have with God. 
Are there other, any other ones that jump to mind? You just speak on, like, what are some other ways we think of God? Creator? Protector? Yeah. What are a few other main ones? Ever-present. Yeah, ever-present. Majestic? That's... Yes, that's provider. So that's getting. So we also think of like judge and king are two other sort of major ways in the scripture that we think about God. You know, he's he's a, a judge, a righteous judge. He's a king. He's ruling over. He's creator. And, and we could go on for a long time in script, how scripture describes God. Now, all these different ways of thinking about it, God, they're not in conflict with each other. So it's not that one's true and another one's not. They all give us different perspectives, different windows to think about God that are important at different stages of our lives. Like there, there are times when you need to connect with God as king. <laughs> there are times you need to connect with him as a judge and recognize that and, and understand that. Uh, but the prayer here starts with our Father. Our Father. So what's special about calling upon God as a Father? And things get a little muddied here because of this, the cultural and historical distance that we have with the first century. You know, American culture spent the last you know, number of decades making movies and stories in which fathers are the clueless, bumbling idiots, right, that we all get to laugh at together. Uh, sometimes they're well-intentioned, uh, but they're incompetent in a lot of the sitcoms and, and shows that we watch. They're the, the butt of the jokes um, because they're morons, as it were. Uh, and our own experience with our fathers could complicate things as well. You know, the great American reflex is to blame our parents for everything, right? So there's one thing Americans do good, it's that. <laughs> yeah, whatever I'm going wrong in my life, I'm sure it was my parents' fault. Uh, and we've been trained to do this. Uh, you know, and we blame our fathers often. You know, they were distant and emotionally uninvolved, or they're overbearing and demanding, or they didn't know how to express love, or they're physically absent, you know, they're just not there. You know, the list could go on of the ways that we could um, you know, be, blame our, our fathers. When the Bible speaks about God as Father, it assumes that the reader, that, that we're able to distinguish between what a, a good father should be and our own experience, which often may, may not be that. So God as Father highlights, I think, something that's really meaningful for us, family relationship. So God as creator or judge or king, those are true, and they communicate incredible power and incredible ability, but they don't require a personal relationship. They don't require a family connection. And Father does that. So God as Father establishes that we exist in this intimate, uh, familial relationship with God. You know, he knows you. He cares about you. He's bound to you as a father. He's not distant or uncaring. He's not unwilling to help. But he willingly takes on this responsibility to care for you, you know, to train you, to protect you, to heal you, to love you. Uh, he's entering into this as your father, this responsibility. All the things we wish you know, our father could have been or could have done. You know, God is a good father. You know, all the things we wish we could be to our own children, those of you who are fathers in here, God is that. And as you engage in conversation with God, you're drawing near to a good father. So you belong there right, with him. You're not intruding. You're not an outsider. <laughs> you're not from some other family that doesn't, doesn't connect with him. You belong with him. You belong in conversation with him. You're safe and you're loved. So these first two words set the tone for this entire experience of prayer that we call upon God as our Father. And the next two words, in heaven, 
Those could be easy to skip over. I mean, heaven is the traditional abode of God. It's how we think of God uh, being in heaven. But I, I want to reflect on it for a few moments with us. You know, God is spirit, so he doesn't have a body like human beings do. He exists in a spiritual realm, which is invisible to our eyes. We don't see it. So we're, we're physical, and we're bound by the physical realm, space and time. And you could perhaps think of this, the spiritual world as this overlay over the physical world, or maybe parallel to it, or it's existing alongside of it. And things that happen in the spiritual realm impact the physical realm, and things that, that take place here our prayers and our actions also impact the spiritual realm. So they're running in parallel with each other. One is there are different dimensions, as it were, different modes of being, uh, but they inter- they're interacting with each other in various ways. And prayer is one of the ways we're interacting with the spiritual realm. And Paul speaks that, you know, uh, in, the, in the first century, people thought of heaven as, as not all the same. So it's not just this undifferentiated mass of spiritual, whatever, mush. You know, there's different levels. There's different geography to it. Normally, it's, it's phrased in terms of proximity to God's throne. So whether it's the third heaven or the seventh heaven, different authors uh, would speak of it in different ways. And in the first century, there was a lot of speculation about the spiritual realm and the, the spiritual beings and their names and their functions. We talk about the seven archangels, which are all named in Jewish uh, uh, writings of the time. And the Bible is quite reserved in that regard. So it doesn't enter into a lot of uh, myths or speculation at all about the spiritual realm. So it's pretty reserved, but it does acknowledge that it exists. There's a spiritual realm that exists, and there are spiritual beings, uh, both good and evil, in it. Um, And then we interact in in that spiritual realm through prayer. So the final two chapters of the Bible, it's a comment out of Revelation 21 and 22, have this vision of the future where God's realm, the spiritual realm, blends with the earthly realm. So in God's new heavens and new earth, the new creation that we're looking forward to, this current barrier between the two where we don't see, we can't see or we can't physically interact with it, is removed and there's a blending of the spiritual realm and the physical realm. And that's, sort of, that's our, our future Christian hope, that God would, would come and dwell with us uh, very uh, intimately. That pictures him wiping away every tear from our eyes. That's something a good father does um, in this blending of the two realms. So when we pray to our Father in heaven, we're recognizing we can't see him right now. We don't see him. We don't see what's happening there. His activity, his actions, they're often, from our perspective, shrouded in in mist. We don't always understand why he's doing what he's doing or what he's doing. There's mystery to it. But we nevertheless declare our confidence he exists and he can act to intervene in this physical world. So I think there is some value in reflecting on in heaven, the abode of God, the spiritual realm, and we're calling upon him uh, to act uh, here in the physical world. The next line, uh, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is a bit of a strange phrase for us. We don't use that word in normal English conversations. I can't think I've ever used it (laughs) in a normal sentence with someone, uh, hallowed. It has to do the idea of um, to sanctify, which is also not used in normal conversation, or to make something holy. To make something holy, that's maybe a bit more common. And holy is to, to, have to set something apart for a special purpose. Right? So we're, we're praying that God's name would be sanctified or hallowed or made holy or set apart. Uh, to be honored might be another way to think of that. Um, and in the first century Judaism, God's name was set apart so intentionally that nobody was allowed to speak it. You may have heard that or, or the Monty Python uh, skit or something related to that. But they refused to speak God's name. And it was their attempt to set it apart as holy. So you'd never, it would never be sullied or dishonored if we never spoke it at all. That was the logic. 
And that's also why there's some current disagreement about what God's name is or how to pronounce it. So in Hebrew, we have the three consonants, but the vowels haven't survived, you know, the centuries because they were never spoken. Um, and so the written text has the consonants, but no vowels. And so sometimes you, you might hear his name is Jehovah. Uh, it's certainly not that because there is no J in Hebrew. So maybe Yehovah, that might be closer to it. Um, Yahweh or Yahweh is another way uh, to speak his name. And Christians don't think that the prohibition um, of taking God's name in vain applies to simply speaking it. So that's not, that's not a Christian idea um, through, our, through Christian history. And there is no conspiracy. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses will claim there's been a conspiracy to cover up God's true name, and they're recovering it. Well, there's no conspiracy. You know, it's, it's first century Jewish tradition that has influenced Christians, uh, but there's nothing wrong with, with speaking his name with honor and re- with respect. Uh, in the ancient world, taking God's name in vain likely meant uh, taking oaths. So you would take an oath, and then you would violate it, <laughs> and then you're taking his name in vain. Um, normally in American Christianity, if we use Jesus' name in expletives, then we're like, you're taking his name in vain. And, and you probably are at that point, <laughs> uh, if you're using it as an expletive. God's name relates to God's reputation. So we set God's name apart as holy as we bring honor or dishonor to his name through our words, through our actions. So our choices as God's children and those who carry his image impact how his name is honored, how his name is set apart as holy or not. So as a prayer, going back to this now, hallowed be your name, is a prayer that God would act uh, to enable us, enable everyone to recognize and honor him appropriately through our lives, through our words, through our actions, that God would act in the world, right? To turn ours and, and other people's hearts towards him in a way that honors him as God, honors him as our father. So the jazz improvisation on this uh, could be expended in various ways. We could ask God for personal help to set his name apart as holy, uh, to honor him for who he is and what he's done, again, with our words, with our actions, with our lives. We could improvise as a prayer for God to work in the lives of others, that they would properly orient themselves towards God in a way that would honor him as creator, as king, and as father. So the next line here, your kingdom come, and I'll combine these uh, lines together, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And they're largely, uh, we think of like poetry, synonymous parallelism. That's a phrase you might learn in like literature class, <laughs> synonymous parallelism in, in Hebrew poetry. Um, so they're, they're similar ideas, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And one of the questions with these requests is, is this a, is this a request for the future, right? That God would establish his kingdom as soon as possible, or is it a request for the present time? And I think it's a bit of both. So Jesus promised his followers that he would return in the future to establish God's kingdom on earth to remove evil forever. So all the evil that's harming us, harming the world, God will remove. He'll set things right. And Jesus promised that. And so Christians, we don't look for a future where things will just keep on with more of the same. That's not a Christian hope for the future. We're looking to a future in which God will intervene in dramatic ways, in transformative ways to set things right. And that's, a, that's good news. Because we look around right now and we see the world's a mess. You know, more so now, I mean, every generation thinks it's the worst. <laughs> so that, well, you don't want to lean into that too much, but it does seem really terrible uh, right now in the world. And we live in this world that's full of broken and shattered dreams. Right? I think everyone's got their dreams when they're kids. I'm going to do this or be this. And, and most of them are shattered by the time we reach adulthood or they're at least changed in various ways. Uh, there's, there's pain, there's suffering we see all around us. 
of brokenness and evil. And because of that, we long. You know, as Christians, we long for God to intervene, for God to act the way he's promised to intervene, to fix things, to heal the broken, to remove evil, and here to conquer death through resurrection life, like he's promised to do for those who follow him. So the Lord's Prayer includes these requests that are looking to the future, that God would hasten that day to establish his kingdom on earth and his will on earth as it is in heaven. But there's more to these requests than just that future. Paul claims um, in one of his writings that every person who's in Christ is a new creation. Like right now, you're a new creation in Christ. So as people turn to God and choose to live God's way, his spirit brings this new life and brings this small taste of that future hope. Right? It's incomplete or it's partial, but it's real that we're experiencing that future new creation right now as we're being transformed by God's spirit. Right? So it's a partial taste of that future day. And the God's spirit is sometimes described in the New Testament as a down payment. Right? So we know that. We're trying to buy a house. We need 10% or 5% or 20 you know, depending on your loan and your finances. But you need a down payment. It was real money. It's part of the purchase price, and it's given in advance you know, to sort of guarantee the connection to that future purchase. And the New Testament describes God's spirit that way. He's a down payment of that future hope. So he's active right now to transform lives, right? To heal the broken, to bring peace, to protect from evil. God's will is done in the present time. And it's partial and it's incomplete. It's not impacting all of creation all at once, the way that it someday will. But there is hope and there is healing that's taking place right now. Like you think this morning, like we constitute right here, right now, a small piece of God's kingdom, of his will being done here on earth. Like we've gathered in his name, we're calling upon his name together. We're, we're a down payment, we're, we're a small taste of that future restoration as we gather as his people. A small taste of that future kingdom, an outpost of that future kingdom right now in the present time. So we're a gathering of, of these people. We're being transformed by his spirit. A small pocket of new creation. Or as Jesus says elsewhere, leaven. You know, leaven that's been put into the, the, the dough and it's spreading. So these lines could be improvised, I think, in a lot of different ways. Uh, for others, for ourselves, that God's kingdom would be established, his will would be done, and our choices and our actions in our homes and our neighborhoods and our workplaces, our countries and the world. So there's, there's, you could improvise a lot here <laughs> when you go into your time of prayer. The final line we'll look at today, and then we'll do the rest of the prayer next week with Pastor Alex, is give us today our daily bread. And it's fairly straightforward. God as our Father is interested in our lives and in our situations, a very uh, physically. <laughs> you know, how are we surviving? How are we eating? How are we living? You know, he has no interest in his followers suffering needlessly. Now, we could say often in life we learn the most when things are hardest. That's when we're most uh, quick to learn, you might think. But God doesn't delight in suffering for suffering's sake. Sometimes people are hesitant to pray for themselves because it may seem selfish. I mean, like, I, you know, I need to pray for others. But it's, it's okay to pray for yourself, to pray for your own needs. And this prayer invites us to do that. Jesus is telling us God cares about your physical needs. And he is, Jesus is confident God will answer. The prayer does include the adjective daily. And that's important because we're trained as Americans to always be thinking about the future and retirement, right? <laughs> and I think that's unfortunate in some ways. Um, there is a lot in the Bible about planning for the future and the wisdom literature in the book of Proverbs particularly. So we do want to plan wisely for the future. But in our culture, we've lost confidence 
Uh, the breakdown of the family, maybe, but we have no confidence anyone will take care of us when we get old, right? So we've got to prepare ourselves. We've got to be ready so we can take care of ourselves because we don't have the family structure to know for sure <laughs> you know, our kids will take care of us. I always joke with having six kids, you know, the hope is at least one of them will take care of us when we get old. I don't know, hopefully all of you will work together on that other task, but, uh, but that's sort of the joke, you know, if maybe one of them will, if we have enough. Uh, <laughs> But I think this, this obsession in America is this lack of confidence. Who will take care of me when I'm older? And we don't have the family structures in place. There's perhaps some pride as well. Like we don't want to have to ever depend on someone else in a needy way. Then there is some pride there. And there's some greed maybe. Like we work all our lives, so we want to live large, <laughs> you know, in those final years. So there's different motives. Um, and again, I'm not, I'm not arguing against preparing for the future. Again, the wisdom literature and, and scripture would, would move us that way. But this prayer focuses on, on our daily needs, the confidence that God will provide day by day. And sometimes an obsession with the future, we miss the, the opportunities to be generous and to serve and to, to meet needs of others in the present. <laughs> so we do want to be careful of that or, or be aware of that. So we could improvise on this slide, I think, in a lot of ways, that whatever the needs and emergencies are day by day, and even future planning, um, that we could, we could bring before God. He invites us to do that to draw him into our problems and our worries and our anxieties. Um, God doesn't just care for your soul. He cares for your body as well. And he's active to provide for daily needs. As we conclude, I just want to give some reflection that we're draw, drawing near here in the time. But spiritual growth and experiencing God's presence and his peace has some similarities to falling asleep, right? You can't force sleep to happen. You can't control the moment you fall asleep. But you could do a lot of things to, to make it likely, right? So you could, you could make sure the room's dark, you know, or get the right shades um, to make sure there's, there's darkness. You could, some people do sound machines or fans to try to make sure the outside noise of cars isn't as much. I had a college roommate who had a sound machine. It was waves, like every night through college. <laughs> uh, that, that's fine. You get used to it, and it blocks out other noises. You know, at the men's retreat, we all had earplugs, in the cabins, because like, you know, you're going to need them at that point. Uh, we can make sure the pillow's right, the temperature, you know, either add blankets or take blankets away. You do a lot of things to make it likely you'll fall asleep, <laughs> but you don't control the exact moment. You can't force it to happen. Um, and that's similar with our spiritual growth and with experiencing God's presence and his peace. We can't force it, but we do things that increase the likelihood that it'll happen. So we set aside time devoted to prayer, to communicating with God. You know, if you turn off, like if you normally watch TV and you turn off the TV, like that's very intentional <laughs> to say, I'm going to connect with God right now. I'm going to set some time aside to meet with him. You could put the electronics in the other room or the phone, you know, put on silence and out of, <laughs> you know, out of reach. Um, there are things we can do. We begin to reach out to God with our, our words and our thoughts. We could confess sin that we're aware of to restore that relationship. Uh, we could release them if there are things you're holding on to that you're refusing to release them, like release them to, to God. Like the things we, we start to do in prayer that increase this possibility, the likelihood that we'll, we'll have a meaningful connection with God. We ask for his help to provide what's needed. We ask for his strength, his wisdom. So we do these things, again, that it can't force, force something, but it, it creates this likelihood of experiencing God's presence and his peace. You know, as you intentionally uh, turn toward him, in the busyness of your life, you know, I can't guarantee that you'll experience you know, presence or peace. I can't guarantee an emotional experience with God. That's not how it works. We're relational beings. We're not robots or machines. 
Uh, but you'll be doing the things that are likely to produce a strong sense of his presence, that he's there with you, walking through life with you. And there is some mystery to this, and personality has something to do with it. You know, some people are more emotional than others, and others are more logical than others. You know, we're all on that spectrum in different ways. But all through history, Christians of every personality type attest to experiencing God's presence and his peace in their lives. You know, you could think of like, a, it's not uncommon, a grown or gruff or hardened man to cry, like when he's experiencing God's presence and this, the huge weight of the, the relief that, God, that he's forgiven. Like, that happened, like there's an emotional element to this as well. Not all the time, not every day, you know, and maybe never. Some people have genuine lifelong trust in God without deep emotional experiences, but those experiences are, not, are also not uncommon either as we're living life in relationship with God. You know, some Christians base their faith on their emotions, and they, hold, they live their whole Christian life sort of seeking emotional highs at conferences or special events. They don't feel like they've meaningfully connected with God you know, in prayer unless there's some emotional weight to it. And other Christians, I think, are, are really suspicious of emotions. You know, they view them as untrustworthy or unpredictable. And like most things, I think the truth is in the middle we can't build our lives on emotions. Uh, they are fickle. They quickly change. Um, and, but people who experience God's presence most powerfully often have, I think, more emotional higher highs and maybe lower lows. <laughs> That's often how emotions work. Others, you know, maybe like myself, uh, we can experience intense emotions, but more steady as she goes. <laughs> you know, maybe lower highs and higher lows, maybe. I don't know. Emotions aren't the enemy, and they're not wrong. Right? So God created us as emotional beings with emotions. And the Psalms and prayers in the Bible often reflect intense emotional experiences, engagement with God and with truth. Now, emotions lead us astray, right? If it's the wrong emotion for the wrong reason, right? To the wrong degree at the wrong time. You can think of all these things that emotions could lead us astray. But part of maturing as a human being (laughs) and as a Christian is that we increasingly have the right emotions, right? For the right reasons at the right time, you know, to the right degree, and then the emotions become an aid towards loving God and following him and doing what's right. I saw all that to say, we don't need to be afraid of emotions in times of prayer or worship. Or we don't need to be afraid of them. We don't need to suppress them. Uh, but we don't want emotions to dictate or control our assessment of our spiritual health. Right? The goal is to draw near to God with genuine trust and dependence, not achieve uh, a certain emotional state. If that's the goal, you won't hit it. Uh, the goal is to draw near to God. And then the emotions often are a byproduct, but again, it's not mechanistic. We're not machines. You know, we don't do certain things to guarantee certain outcomes. We're in relationship with God. That was just some, some random rabbit trail reflection on emotions and prayer uh, that I think could be helpful. Uh, as we close now, we'll go to some next steps. Um, and I want to repeat the one from last week because it's this invitation to prayer. The idea is, that we have a need. We have a need. We're people of habit. And we thrive best when we, we make things habits. That's how we work as human beings. When we could automate things or, or make them habitual, uh, then we, we actually thrive best in a lot of ways. Um, so to create a rhythm of prayer. You know, when will I pray? Where will I pray? How should I pray? How long should I pray? Again, uh, if you're brand new to it, start with 15 seconds. Uh, but, you know, you could shoot for five minutes and then see about expanding it. Um, it'll, it'll depend on the day, I think, sometimes. But habits would be, I'm going to set this time apart to draw near to God. Then the second next step I would encourage you is each day this week, 
Pick one of the lines of the Lord's Prayer, right? And meditate on that line and use that line to improvise on. So we have our Father in heaven. That could be Monday, you know, hallowed be your name. Tuesday, your kingdom come. Wednesday, your will be done. Thursday, on earth as it is in heaven. Friday, give us today our daily bread. Saturday, that gets you through to next Sunday. So to pick a line, but then improvise. Like practice improvising on this line that Jesus uh, taught us to get started. And that would guide us forward this week in prayer. So again, that's, not, that's a suggestion. It's not mechanistic. You know, if you have daily bread needs, start with that today. <laughs> Give us this day our daily bread. As you want to customize it based on your needs. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have a, a concluding song of worship. Father, we thank you for this invitation today to draw near to you, to live life with you instead of without you, to turn towards you instead of turning away from you. And we thank you for the practical instruction uh, you give through the Lord's Prayer that we've looked at today. And we ask that you would help us. We want to live life in a relationship with you. We don't want to live distant. We don't want to hold our breath unnecessarily. We want to breathe the, the life of communication with you, to call out to you a thousand times a day as we go through life. That's our desire, to live life with you and not without you. And we ask that you to honor that this week as each of us in our homes, in our jobs, in our responsibilities, that we could connect with you this week in new ways and in fresh ways, in exciting ways, in ways that would invigorate our lives and our activity, would motivate us and move us forward towards wisdom and maturity and courage. And we thank you that you are with us and we trust you with our lives, with our families, with our finances, with all the needs that weigh on us, with the, the world that seems out of control. We trust you. It's not out of control. You are its king and its creator. And you are at work to bring new creation right here, right now, in the midst of this old creation. We trust you today. We pray this together in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.